<laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the DXM podcast. I am your host, Colborn Bell. I am joined today uh, by the incredible artist duo Entangled Others. It is a pleasure to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Uh, we start in the same place every time. Would love to learn a bit about you both, um, how your practices came together, what it means to be entangled others, uh, and what brought us together today. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we um, start. Um, so I was making art <laughs> in 2018 um and no sorry 2019 and suddenly one day i see this uh, weird retweet from somebody with a handle dark fractures all in caps very good <laughs> very good like, <laughs> and i was just like who is this person and um and i click and i open their the, the profile and i see these beautiful 3d scans of trees and they look like really really detailed and intricate i had never seen anything like that but i was really into photogrammetry at the time so i wrote them a message and i think like we instantly kind of connected because we were both interested in finding this place of intersection between like understanding nature or creating kind of uh, an interpretation of nature through a digital context like visualizing nature in a completely like virtual world and i think that's kind of where it started for us um and then i introduced felly to machine learning uh which i had been working with and generative art in, in general actually yeah so i mean my background is originally architecture so i originally was working as an architect until about five years ago when I sort of had enough and decided, okay, I would, since I had specialized while studying in art and architecture, I figured I'd, you know, try the art bit a bit more. And then, yeah, I'd, I'd been working a lot, you know, with 3D and these kind of things and sort of had, had noticed that like generative art and sort of machine learning was a thing, but I never really quite sort of understood what it was apart from, you know, it, it looked interesting. And then I came across Sophia's work. It was just like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, this is like, I have no idea how it's made, but this is gorgeous, you know? And then of course, um, once we started talking about that, there was actually, you know, a lot of overlap in the mythology. Like when you go, for example, out 3D scanning, you know, you take thousands and thousands of images just to capture a single tree, for example. And in just in the same way, you, you capture, you know, thousands and thousands of images to create a data set. And then you have these very lengthy processing times. There was something about the pacing that was, you know, weirdly familiar in a way. And then, you know, it just kind of became rather a natural kind of click. <laughs> uh, pieces sort of fell into place there. And then, yeah. Yeah, and then we just kind of started uh, collaborating and right away. And... We first we started with small things and then I told Feli like, oh, I have this idea that I've been wanting to do for a while. Like I want to create these insects, but in I want to make them in 3D. I don't want to make them in 2D anymore. And then Feli was like, okay, let me think about it. And Feli is somebody who's very persistent at a problem. I'm more like I give up if something becomes like too, too difficult. But he's more like... a 
a persistent, um, very stubborn. Well, that's his approach. And I remember seeing him like trying to solve a problem there. I was like, well, we just don't have the tools to do this in 3D. And one day he's like, I have this idea. Um, I, I think I know how we can approach this. And, and then we created the first generation of what became like our first formal collaboration called Artificial Remnants. And that's a project um, about insectile anatomy. And, um, and then we started creating these, uh, well, AI generated insects uh, in 3D. And that's kind of where, where it started for us. So um, I think we only started calling ourselves Entangled Others in 2020. And yeah, it sort of made a lot of yeah. sense to sort of formalize things under also under sort of a, a conceptual wrapper because there were a lot of what we talked about and the ways we wanted to uh, work, you know, with nature, technology, and how we can sort of approach this, uh, this kind of interesting <laughs> tangle, as it were. And then we figured, why not, you know, start a studio also because we wanted it to be, you know, a little bit more fluid and flexible. Um, and yeah, that, that's what we've been doing ever since, really. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's it, basically. You know, I think there is so much in a name, and this name, Entangled Others, is... Um, it's, it's just so incredibly encompassing of the work, so maybe we can just talk a little bit more about uh, the name, and then we'll, we'll dive deeper into the practice and the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, like, it took us, I mean, the name was kind of a weird thing, because it was something, you know, we sort of, we kind of actually spent, like, throwing the ball back and forwards for a couple of months on that, because we wanted to find something, you know, that had the right kind of, I'm not gonna, I don't want to use the word hierarchy, but the right kind of balance in it, you know, we wanted to find something which, you know, also encompassed the way we wanted things to be, you know, to sort of, to work on trying to sort of peel back some of, the, the everyday mundane stuff to show just how entangled we actually are with, you know, the world around us, you know, the modern human world that we, you know, even so a lot of the way we consume technology today, you know, through, for example, a phone with, you know, which has a decidedly platonic interface, you know, sort of with modern, <laughs> modern interface designs being what they are, sort of, it, it's very easy to see the digital as somehow, you know, a layer above the world that really doesn't, isn't, isn't bound by the same kind of sticky, messy interactions we have. But the reality, of course, is, you know, completely opposite. You press a button, something else happens around the world. There isn't, and sometimes, you know, the other way around, weather or other events suddenly shift in the digital. So actually everything's, you know, really quite tightly knitted together. And I think unless we sort of try and find ways to own that reality is a bit more messy and, you know, not so simple, it's very hard for us to sort of, make any sort of concrete steps forwards because we kind of live in the wrong kind of feedback loop where all the interfaces, everything we see is kind of just nurturing the sense of, you know, being in a in our own world that isn't, you know, connected to anything else. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's basically where in the word entangled comes from there, from this kind of invisible connection or invisible link to to something. And it was very much inspired as well by this 
idea of like quantum mechanics as well, you know, mm. entanglement and um, yeah, that that concept in itself. And the the word others refers to how we kind of look at the natural wor uh, world in a mundane context, how we very often see like, um, for example, insects as, you know, like those weird creatures that we don't fully understand, you know, they don't have a skeleton, they're, they're the other, they're very different to us. And I think a lot of um, the natural world is like, our relationship with natural world is rooted in a huge misunderstanding. Um, we very often don't uh, don't understand like other forms of cognition, you know, and we kind of hold um, hold everything to the human standard. You know, we think intelligence is this thing that we can do and that other creatures struggle to do. Yep. And um, so we wanted to kind of uh, convey this idea through through that word. Um, and these are kind of the more um, illustrate like the more uh, important aspects of of our practice. Uh, so we want we aim to do all our projects around these um, these two main concepts. I think it's really beautiful, and I think the work absolutely speaks for itself. Uh, I remember the early like photogrammetry gametry of the of the trees. <laughs> and then the evolution into um you know these kind of like fantastical insects with these you know beautiful uh patterns or or skins or um it, it really was unlike anything that i had ever seen and of course you know ai is is very hot right now but yeah. i think the the work that you were doing then it really stood out then and just continues to shine so maybe you can kind of take the listeners uh, to these early explorations. What was what was going on with you then? What were you seeking to explore? What were you finding as you created these pieces? Right. Um, well, like, I mean, first of all, the landscape of AI art in general was very different back then. <laughs> um, there was no Dali, there was no Midjourney. And at least when I started, it was still like um, everything was a lot more bare bone to run. Um, it's still like obviously not as bare bone as it was a decade ago, but still like um, it was a very different landscape. Um, so when, when we started... Um, with artificial remnants, for example, what we wanted to do was to talk about biology and we wanted to talk about insect anatomy. And we wanted to kind of look at the way that we categorize the natural world when we kind of um, create, you know, these encapsulations, like this is one organ, this is another organ. And there's a functionality and we wanted to kind of look at that um, at, at that way of interpreting what is happening in our surrounding and create by, by creating an artificial study of something. So we didn't just want to generate the bug. We also wanted to generate um, the artificial study of the bug. 
and that's kind of that's kind of how it started yeah um, and of course you know sort of rather rather quickly sort of we run into this whole <laughs> challenge of there just isn't a lot of data you know openly available for insects so three-dimensional and literature etc it was actually quite sparse so what became quite interesting was that even though we were working with you know these fantastically then modern tools you know and you know cutting edge so to speak um, at the same time what we are able to generate is really just a very 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 small um kind of space of variation or a sort of diversity, you know, anytime we generated something we thought was, you know, somehow a bit fantastic or out there, you know, you, a few minutes later going on Twitter, you know, if you follow a few insect accounts, then suddenly something comes along and like, you just see like nature has just gone hold my beer. And it's like, this most incredible beetle or something. And you're just like, what? What like this? I cannot even get close to generating anything that's you know crazy, diverse, and rich. So what was very interesting with that project, and I really kind of hammered it home for, was that what we were able to generate wasn't really a a mirror of the reality, but rather a mirror. It created a mirror of what we knew or was commonly available to us about insect our life. You know, so naturally this kind of um, Became it became really interesting to see like how the data available very much shapes what we perceive and how the reality of things often is quite different and that's sort of become one of the red threads at least for the also for the following project beneath the neural waves was this idea that or uh, sort of realization rather that a lot a lot of the way we work with these tools isn't so much about creating we've never had the intention of trying to like create a new nature or anything like that but it, it's not necessarily the more than human world we're mirroring so much as our human view of that world um and that is of course you know really quite fascinating because it's still you know something really interesting by itself but it becomes this uh, sort of interesting tension where it's kind of tracing the boundaries of what we know or can imagine i think that sort of not necessarily on an individual level but rather in the sort of generalization and that's you know what neural networks or at least the sort of the the architectures we've used are very good at. They're good at distilling and, you know, extracting essential patterns from data. So, yeah. And I mean, back then when we started, we trained a GPT-2 model and it feels now like vintage almost to say that because yeah. <laughs> it feels like vintage technology already, but yeah. it's not um, so long ago, really. It's maybe four, three, four years ago, yeah, right? Well, um, yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious if there was any, you know, thought about, uh, you know, biodiversity in digital spaces in the metaverse, obviously populating, you know, these, these digital spaces with kind of insects or, you know, insectoid life is, certainly have never heard that before i've never seen anybody put bugs in the metaverse um i'm i'm curious if you know if that is important to you at all yeah, yeah i mean that was kind of we've been fascinated by artificial life for a while especially sort of sophia really introduced me to the sort of rather rich uh, history of artificial life and i uh, 
And there is absolutely this sort of question, you know, one thing is to create, you know, these sort of virtual organisms, or at least try to. Um, another thing is what we sort of, what kind of space they inhabit, you know, do they become, you know, like Tamagotchi, or are they somehow, you know, doing their own thing? And we, we, we tr we've done some experiments with that. I wouldn't say they're necessarily particularly successful, but we, for example, augmented reality and these kind of things to try and, you know, have these virtual organisms share some kind of space but not necessarily in a way where they're in any way interactive you know you can't poke or prod them or anything like that but they just exist and it was quite interesting to see how you know some people still have a very strong reaction to like something insectile you know that aversion but others you know who found sort of that they found them quite engaging somehow you know it kind of seemed to bypass a little bit that sort of initial reaction and that sort of led us to think of it, sort of consider a bit the potential for digital experiences of nature being, you know, positively formative, that they can perhaps be, you know, a way for us to condition ourselves to, you know, sidestep some of our more instinctual reactions or sort of inherited bias towards the more than human. Yeah, I had once someone ask ask me to stop posting on Instagram, like <laughs> bugs. <laughs> Any hour, he's like, "Can you please just stop?" And I was like, "Follow me, like you don't have to look at this." But yeah. um, but what why I found that interesting actually is because a lot of our relationship to insects is based on like fear or disgust you know they they bring up a lot of these kind of uh, primal emotions or reactions in us so that's i i think it's still important to create a digital representation of nature um as long as you know it isn't what felican said is not uh nature as a pet or a, you know a prop um and but i still think that it is important to have like a kind of digital representation of um of nature in a digital in a digital format um so yeah that yeah. part part of your project with the trees yeah. is actually um digitizing real trees um to create like a digital archive of them um they were really really old like they were thousands of years old but I think those are the prime example of the kind of creatures that deserve to be appreciated because they exist in real life. And I think the more that people spend time online or in the metaverse, it is also important for them to create a connection to these beings in a way. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I fight all the time against is like the metaverse as a sterile space. Um, mm -hmm. you know, just rectangular boxes, white boxes, traditional right. galleries. Uh, so I think we very much, you know, share that. I want it to be wild. I want it to be uncontrollable. I want it to continue to surprise people. And I think just your work inherently does that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, maybe we can uh, transition a little bit and... Uh, do you want to talk about AI? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about everything that is happening? Obviously, it's it's so hot. So many people have had access or have been opened up and given access to these creative tools. Um, just maybe curious at a very high level, your your thoughts on this. 
Yeah, so we have um, kind of mixed emotions. Like on one uh, hand, we're happy that the general public is kind of looking at AI art now and that people are talking about it and that the entry barrier has lowered a lot. You know, you don't need to be an AI engineer or, you know, to have a PhD to be able to uh, to work with AI. Anymore. For the record, neither of us are, have any sort yeah, of coding or engineering background. So we, <laughs> we very much had to just like yeah, muscle our way through, you know, the, the difficult bits. But we're lucky that still, like, even when, when we started, there were people um, making efforts to teach about AI online. There was some online content about it. So if we had started it maybe, you know, four years before, it would have been much harder to find all that content online to learn. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of talk about AI consciousness, you know, like this Google engineer saying yeah. that his AI became conscious. Um, and, you know, that's the part where I feel um, I find it a little bit depressing to think that, you know, we are we're still debating whether other life forms like octopus, if an octopus is conscious or not. But somehow the AI seems for sure to be conscious, you know, yeah. and it's just like sometimes I. Um, yeah, that it makes me feel just just sad that, you know, like a technology just because it's human created gets this kind of higher hierarchy um, and yeah, and there's this idea of sort of artificiality being somehow better and I think so I, the democratization of these tools you know is incredibly important I think from the point of view of if we look at processing for example um, if we rewind you know 20 years ago there was very little available um, but thanks to, you know, processing being open and out there, it took, you know, a good 10, 15 years, really. But then you see, not just from the West, but from all around the world, these amazing artists emerge you, who, you know, cut their teeth on processing that because it was openly available, easy to run. Right. The diversity of the digital art space and the visibility, you know, of, you know, non-European or non-US uh, artists suddenly is a lot more balanced. And that was, and that I think is also very important because so far, you know, the the barrier to entry has been very high. And of course, it's the same problem we have also with VR. VR is, you know, very, very much for those who can afford it. And those who can afford it are very few. Um, and the same has been so far traditionally. So I think like this movement of democratization is very important in that regard, of course, because a lot of the main development has been, you know, pushed by massive corporations who have insane resources and also have been a little above the law in terms of, you know, how they go about sourcing what they need to create these. Um, this has, of course, led us to our current situation, which is, you know, a bit, a bit sticky in that regard. And is, of course, you know, has to be, you know, addressed and preferably dealt with relatively quickly so that we actually you know, uh, don't sort of, you know, make AI, you know, capitalism 2.5 as a sort of engine, because um, that is, you know, hugely problematic. But I think it is a very exciting time and it's really good to have, you know, such, such a variety out there. I mean, that has been very nice to see, but I think like this uh, hyper unconsciousness is, it's a bit misleading and it's also, you know, um, 
I'm very hesitant about it also because it's kind of a cop-out in terms of, you know, being responsible. And I think, like, that's always been for us very important, you know, like, to own, like, the fact that, you know, if we generate these insectile creatures, that we own the fact that these aren't a one-to-one -one replica of insect biodiversity out there. You know, they don't even do a fraction of a percentage of the diversity in terms of form and, you know, um, expression. And it's important to own that. And I think like this personification of these complex systems also makes it very easy to kind of like nudge yourself out of any responsibility for what happens next. And I think that's, you know, I think it's very problematic. And I think, yeah, it's... Yeah, in a way, we were saying like it's a strange time to work with AI art. One part of it is is really really nice that the general public now seems to understand a little bit more about it. But at the same time, a lot of misconceptions have uh, like become more accentuated. I think, and and there's this whole issue with data sets, of course, like sourcing, you know, from artists who work with traditional media and that then you know their style or their yeah their visual identity becomes you know just taken and used um in these kind of corporate <laughs> huge models so and that's really problematic as well i i totally understand the you know the the backlash behind uh why artists would be mad at that um yeah so there's there's all this stuff happening and we're just like okay <laughs> well <laughs> twitter twitter is getting heated on this uh... <laughs> well let's see if i can draw a bit of a thread between all of these you know what what i hear from you both is um both the idea of just like an extension of consciousness an extension of consciousness to to trees to animal life, to plant life, um, to expanded consciousness of the individual, to to like the recognition of of more responsibility and power and and willingness to be entangled across these dimensions, and then interest in kind of like the consciousness of of the machine, um, and not kind of like abdicating responsibility to the machine, but also more of a, yeah. a dialogue and a conversation between that is that possibly relates yeah to yeah yeah absolutely it it can be problematic if we say like for example you know the machine made it yeah. and it's alive and i don't control it yeah and i think like that's a very uh quick way of saying okay well you know i don't have any work left to do i i cannot fine tune you know uh work on my data set to make it uh, to improve it i don't have any work to to do with the algorithm to actually improve it and i think the whole idea of consciousness around ai is just very misleading Absolutely. Um, and i think it's also there's a lot of hype about capability that doesn't really match up i mean that's something we were trying to address with the project critically extant where we took the biggest open sort of data set that was sort of like open, openly sourced and permissible for um, for images of nature. So across some 2.9 million images across 10,000 species. Now, you know, that sounds like a lot, right? 10,000 species. 
The thing is we've cataloged about 1.2 million out of what we estimate to be about 8.3 million species on the planet. So, you know, this is, any, this is a tiny data set. So, but what we tried to do with that is we took the um, critically endangered species and we constru constructed a tree, a uh, kind of a truncated or a sort of like pruned tree of life with these, um, we took the tree of life, mapped the critically endangered species, and then we took these 10,000 species that we trained, you know, a then cutting edge model on. And we tried to match the, using an uh, algorithmically to map the nearest genetic neighbor on the tree of life to this sort of limited 10,000 tree as a way of trying to see, because there is so little data about critically endangered species that aren't, you know, pandas, lions, giraffes, uh, whales, you know, the common, sort of you know very uh, popular species on instagram most of these you know often equally if not far more critical species you know they have just a latin name and a description <laughs> of when they were last uh, sort of like evaluated and that's it so if we sort of take these ten thousand species you know and this data available to us now and try and reconstruct you know if we fast forward in time 50 years and then try and reconstruct them if they've all gone extinct how close can we get to actually being able to like reconstruct a reasonably accurate image? And what it turns out is most of the time we're not even close, <laughs> you know, that all this data, all this technology, it's kind of an exercise in futility because we still know far too little about the world around us. And, you know, the technology like a year ago or the technology now isn't going to be enough to change that in any way. It's the end of the day, you know, we're still working with high tech, but it still fundamentally has, you know, quite hard limits in what it can do. And there is no sort of silver bullets. So that's, that's also been a part of, you know, what we do is try and sort of not be too sort of luxury about it, but kind of just, you know, through the work show also kind of the boundaries of what these things can or can't do. Cause, uh, cause we need to have some, you know, some balance in it yeah and this connects somehow to a project that we have upcoming this year where we're collaborating uh, with a team uh, one of them is a biologist and the other one is an art director and they're based in brazil and together we applied for a grant to the amazonas and rainforest and a lot of their work is focused on cataloging new species of praying mantis in the Amazonas um, and we think it's amazing that you know they are going out into the wild completely and they are um, working on cataloging all these new species and trying to um, understand because it's such a dense environment like there there's so 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 many uh, different species that we still haven't um, catalog that all we have no idea they even exist so it's just um, uh, to us like that aspect of connecting to the data where it comes from you know and who is actually working on on cataloging that data became more and more important and um, we want to really connect our work to that so so yeah that's that's something we're excited about um, two things yeah. One, I, I work for an organization, nonprofit called the, the Rainforest Partnership, and they're constantly out there finding new frogs, new snakes. Oh, really? um, <laughs> so I'd love to connect you, like to just kind of bring those into the data set. They're, they're super yeah. wonderful and kind people. Um, and the second point, 
I think is, you know, what always scared me about like chat GPT, of course, was just this, this centralized single answer, right? And when you talk yeah. about like bias ingrained in models, well, of course, this is always going to have like, uh, it's going to have a Western bias. It's going to have like, yeah. where is the processing power? It's going to yeah. really continue to just like favor the victors who have written history. Exactly. Um, and I think people, you know, very much take a lot of this. And I think the way it's being presented is, is as fact, uh, you know, you kind of lose the, the variability of that Google search if, if that even exists, or at least the presentation of the information in that way. Yeah, um, exactly. A huge part of it is presentation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that's it. and it's also it's, it's important to remember that there is a lot of creative space, sort of of you know creating novel you know kind of recombinations of latent points within a model space, but ultimately you know you do run into quite hard limits in terms of data in, data out. You know what you give is what you get in that regard, and that's also very important when we're sort of trying to imagine something new. For example, I see this a lot with architecture right now, which is having sort of an AI moment it's by the looks of it. And there it's sort of, you know, a lot of these tools sort of get, you know, wholesale adopted because they create images very quickly. And, you know, with architecture, it's usually a very slow process to get to the point where you have a flashy image, right? The problem is that most of these image models or chat GPT, what have you, don't necessarily have much specific updated or even, you know, good knowledge about, for example, e more ecological green architecture or ways of seeing the world or the modern human world. So basically what you're working with is kind of a distillation of what's already there, which, you know, frankly has gotten us into a fair bit of mess already now. And it's that's also one of these sort of worrisome aspects that if we if we don't find ways to, you know, critically engage in what kind of world do we want and what kind how do we shape these tools and adjust them so that it can also help us towards something new or something different. We're going to kind of, I'm worried we end up in the same situation as Netflix is right now, where we kind of like gone into an algorithmic spiral of regurgitating the same until the point of, you know, it's basically, you know, collapsing in upon itself because it's A, it's entirely predictable, it's entirely boring, and it hasn't really managed to sort of nurture something different within it. Anyway, end of yeah, rant. Look, I, think, I think that's a super, super point. I am obsessed with how all of this is just trending us broadly towards like mediocrity. Uh, mm. Nothing new, everything just the same, regurgitated. Uh, how the algorithm conditions you to be the same as you were yesterday. It doesn't allow you to break free. It doesn't allow you to create anything new. People might feel like it's feeding them new images, but you know, again, if it's if it's not leading to anything, it just kind of drives everybody into the same uh, thing. You know, like global capitalism creating monoculture. Uh, everywhere yeah. you go, everything the same. Everybody has access to the same thing. And and really, what does that create? But like stability, and and that for me is is pretty scary. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of something we actually sort of experienced quite early on with the project beneath neural waves, where we wanted to not just generate single specimens, but try and generate a small ecosystem. And for us, you know, a natural choice became coral reefs because they're kind of this crucial ecosystem for biodiversity, but they have, they cover such a small percentage of the ocean floors. 
um, the thing was, though, there was just no data. So in the end, we had to sort of enlist the help of a fellow artist, Joel Simon, who's done a lot of work with genetic algorithms to grow based upon, you know, observations of coral, grow three-dimensional coral we could use as a data set. So it was interesting for us still, you know, I mean, you could call it a failure, but we thought it was quite interesting to map out what we knew about corals. But the fact of the matter was that there just wasn't data available about something that, you know, everybody knows what a coral reef is, but there's no data available. So you, anything we could generate is more reflection of our knowledge, not of the actual reality and the actual diversity of it. And well, this kind of, this problem kind of becomes both a lot harder to grasp, but also far more, you know, all encompassing, you know, with these new generations of, you know, incredibly large models, incredibly huge data sets, but we still fundamentally face that problem again and again. Yeah, I'm really hoping that with time and not just for our our purpose, which is art and, you know, it doesn't have anything like inherently scientific about it uh, in, in its goal, but for bi biologists and researchers in general, like I really hope that we get better data sets and better open source data sets and can be used um, because um, yeah it's very limited like of course there are more and more open source efforts but um, it's still like all very very limited in, in yeah. what you can access yeah hmm. uh, you know are we danced around it we haven't really touched it i'm curious having gone through a cycle having sold art on both sides of this now how do you feel about nfts oh mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 i don't know like i mean my personal perspective is is i kind of see it um kind of like selling a print you know or a sculpture it's one way of you know, allowing people to collect your work and, you know, perhaps more importantly, you know, allow us to sort of manage to keep actually making art, you know, full time. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not like we've gotten rich of it or anything, but, you know, we've been able to now actually do this for a couple of years, yeah. sort of full time as a studio, and we feel like super lucky to do that. I think we wouldn't like possibly, um, maybe we would still be doing this like but we wouldn't be able to like have the the capacity to say no to projects just to we would have to make a lot more compromises you know um and thanks to that we've been able to say like no we you know we want to pursue like the projects that are important to us and yeah it like when we started uh, putting our work out as FTs, we were very, um, you know, we didn't know. We were really uncertain about like what would happen, what would what would this ecosystem become, and it seemed, in my opinion, it seemed just very different to what it is now. Yeah. Um, yeah. If anything, I think it has grown a lot. Uh, there are a lot of things that I that I like much more now about it. Uh, it seems much more open um, to 
like to everyone, there seems to be a lot more focus on inclusion, inclusivity, like, um, and having diversity of voices. Um, and, and that's a big thing. Um, but at the same time, sometimes like I do get overwhelmed, uh, things go very fast and it's still like, important for us to take a step back and say like you know well this is as much work as I can release for now you know I need to like take my time to think about what I want to do and to be purposeful about it yeah. um yeah the space the pace of things has been a bit daunting at times especially because a lot of our projects sort of exist on a sort of half a year to a year scale I mean we now finally have soon releasing something that's been sort of cooking for about half a year. And I would say like this um, sort of finally being exhibited um, now after half a year, but really it's still probably another half year before it's kind of reached. Well, it was two years that we've been thinking about yeah, the yeah. project. So, and... but, yeah. So it's like a lot of our, <laughs> we, a lot of our work isn't really sort of a very quick thing. It takes a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of experimentation. And of course, that is quite at odds at the pace of things. So for us, that's sometimes been a bit jarring. This kind of like, hey, we'd like you to do an online exhibition next week. You know, uh, can you provide like a hundred pieces? Or like, well, about that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so that's kind yeah. of like, that's one thing. But I mean, I think it's been good to space in some ways, you know, especially, you know, you can't really avoid the fact that, you know, if it hadn't been for that, the pandemic would have been a lot harder for a lot of artists. Yeah. You know, we know ourselves and a lot of artists just wouldn't have pulled through uh, as artists through that. And that's yeah. that, you know, for better or for worse, that was, you know, one very good thing. But, you know, a lot of our peers and ourselves were able to make it through due to that. But I think also, um, they're no silver bullet by themselves and um, nor do they sort of, you know, necessarily imply anything better than was unless we actually, you know, keep taking the time and energy and keep pushing to build more diverse, more ba balanced platforms and, you know, are able to sort of try and try and embody, you know, better, healthier values for, you know, the whole ecosystem because, a lot of the ecosystem has been around Twitter, which, you know, at times can be also a little, not necessarily the most nurturing environment for new artists coming on, to, <laughs> stepping out into the world. So there's this sort of, it's, it's always a balance, I think, to be practiced. I don't think we're ever going to really get there, but I think, we, you know, if we keep trying, we'll get somewhere. Well, yeah, we need to remain hopeful about yeah, it. Otherwise, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it definitely it definitely helped us a lot. Like there was a time, so my first NFT was released in January 2020. Um, and since then <laughs> to now, well, there's been a lot of, you know, ups and downs, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, and also for us, like I, I had moments where back before the ethereum merge there was a time that people got really really mad and especially at artists to have a focus on nature um and releasing nfts and you know like we i remember there was a time where people were chasing me on my dms like telling me you know like what a hypocrite you are why are you doing this like attacking me 
um and it was that was a very weird time you know to to be releasing mm -hmm. work in nft format you know we, um, it was also rent to be paid you know and food <laughs> to be bought so there's a that's... And it was a very difficult conversation to yeah. have in a way, you know, how do I explain that, you know, like we don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and yeah, and then, you know, like they're the good times where people are more interested in buying work and then suddenly it's a crypto crash and then like, you know, <laughs> like, and then how to psychologically deal with all these uh, the market, you know, like supply and demand and um, what does it mean if my artwork is worth more or less? And, you know, for some artists that has been like really a lot to deal with, like their works are worth uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars overnight. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, overnight they're, they're worth less. And it's all these all this stuff to psychologically navigate as well which it might not look like it has an impact but it has an impact on artists because um yeah that's a huge administrative overhead you know the sort of because of the way the space was set up early on you know with the sort of kind of anti-gallery movement you know the normal figures who would have been there to sort of you know soften a lot of that kind of complex logistics and networking etc that normally a gallery does was entirely not there sort of so there was you know this bit of a and still is you know very much a chaotic space in terms of how much how many factors you're supposed to be somehow on top of and understanding whilst at the same time hopefully producing something new and good <laughs> and i think like you know i at least i feel quite lucky to have you know been making art that nobody saw or collected you know from way before <laughs> nfts were a thing purely because for me it's like I, i'm gonna do it anyway i just you know i'm trying to find that balance in my practice so that i can keep doing you know this in 30 years time because i have well i have several notebooks with more than enough projects to fill that duration so it's not like um i have plenty to do you know in that regard so i think it's more like the sort of long-term view, I think, is still very much missing in the space. Like, you know, will everyone, you know, still be able to be around in 20, 30 years' time doing their thing? Like, how do we, you know, how do we balance that sort of short-term up-down with, you know, more long-term thinking? Because I think that's also going to be ultimately quite important for, you know, those to come and after us as well. Yeah. Uh, but something that I'm grateful for is that, there are conversations being had. For example, the issue with the royalties, you know, like maybe uh, years ago, like before NFTs were popular and everything, uh, you know, that's an issue that artists and galleries would know about, uh, but it wouldn't be talked in the mainstream or, you know, like th there wouldn't be like these massive discussions about that and something that i am grateful to see is that you know so many collectors have stepped up in favor of that and you know that people know that that's an issue even if there are people like obviously actively against royalties for artists but i'm just glad that the conversations are being had you know yeah, yeah. well we are just getting warmed up here but <laughs> yeah Fortunately, we're out of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll we'll have to bring you back at some point. 
uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm super, super grateful for the time. Please like let people know and last words that you might have where they might be able to find you, websites, socials, anything you'd like. Yeah, so we are Entangled Others on Instagram and Twitter. I am Sofia Crespo, so I have my, I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, and Feli as well under his different handles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Felican.mccormick and uh-huh. Entangled Light. You ditched all the, the dark gothic ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a phase, yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I was very much into sort of dark ecology by Timothy Morton and sort of that kind of philosophical rapper to it, so it wasn't entirely as goth as it sounds. Um, he was still pretty goth. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> what can I say? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um... All right. Let's get out of here. Uh, thank you both. Yeah, I'm Colborn Bell. Thank you. thank you, Dementi, Entangled Others. Thank you, everybody, for, for listening. And it's always a pleasure. Until thank next you. time. Thank you. Thank you Until for next us. time. Bye bye.